The mission of this podcast is to use our voices coupled with the appropriate knowledge to create a more informed activist, which can then use their voice to create a better present and future for all black Americans. Join us in our journey to change a part of our world that we know needs changing, because at the end of the day, the conversations about human rights are the ones that need to be had, and they're usually the toughest talks. And I'm Zach Billings. And this is Tough Talks. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Tough Talks, episode six. I'm here with Adam Mullins. Adam, today we're talking about the war on drugs. How you doing, dude? I'm doing great, man. How are you? How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. I'm really excited about this one. That's great, man. A bit of history and just some current events and why our system is the way that it is and how it's gotten to this place. Um, I feel like we don't touch on drugs because, you know, it's a really taboo topic, man, because, you know, drugs are seem like one of those icky things, you know, when you're a parent, right? Mm-hmm. What do you? What, what's the first thing you tell your child to do? Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's good advice, right? But for those people who do do drugs and overdose, man, I, I feel like it's taboo to talk about helping them, but rather we throw them in jails. And I think that happens disproportionately towards black people. So that's why we have dedicated a tough talk to the war on drugs. Zach, would you like to introduce with some history on the war on drugs? Because I know you have a lot. I do have you know, when I say quite a, a lot. When I say a lot, man, he's, this man's done his research on this. Yeah, I've, gotten to, I've watched a couple documentaries on right. it, um, then fact-checked after that. Um, start with some current stuff. Um, did you know that uh, the U.S. is approximately 5% of the world's population? Okay. And we have 25% of the world's prisoners. I actually did know that. 25% of the world's prisoners is in the land of the free. It's kind of ironic, don't you think? I mean, it's kind of... It's kind of... It's kind of contradictory. Yeah. You know? Um... So, in 1972, the U.S. prison population was about 350,000. And in 2020, that number is closer to 2.3 million. Damn. Uh, The U.S. has currently the highest incarceration rate in the world. And the reason why that has become is because after uh, slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment, basically, there's like a little clause in there, right, Mm -hmm. that... You know, slavery is abolished, and you can't be forced to work right. for no wages. Right. But, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the U.S. or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So basically what that's saying is that if you, quote-unquote, do something and are convicted, you can go to prison and be, you know... right. You can people can make money off you and you won't ever see a dime of it. Right. So it's basically saying it's illegal to be a slave of the United States. So for those that you know, saying trying to discredit those fighting for against the effects of slavery, saying that it's gone, there's your proof that it's still well and alive today. Right. Yeah. Um, this exception is a tool that has been used to legally enslave African Americans by imprisoning them since after the Civil War. Um, Directly after the Civil War, African Americans were arrested in large numbers in our nation's first prison boom. Mm. Um, they were arrested for petty crimes such as loitering. Um, 
which is simply just like staying in a certain place for a long time for no purpose. Like, you know, if I just went downtown and just stood there, right. That's what loitering is. Right. And the definition kind of goes back and forth, but that's such a petty crime. And then they they would make African-Americans go to prison for that and put them on chain gangs. Right. And so he's in prison. African-Americans would rebuild the Southern economy after the civil war and mm-hmm. chain gangs and things like legally as slaves under the 13th amendment. Also not to interject, but are you familiar with the term sharecropping? Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So sharecropping is was another form of slavery yeah. that was actually made legal, but they did it in a really creative way, right? Because, you know, a lot of a lot of slaves work in fields, so they already had the skills to be able to, you know, you know, be a, a handyman in the field, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the white plantation owners, they saw that, and they saw that the black man also needed a job because they weren't equipped with any other skills other than day labor, right? So what they did was... They said, you know what? You can come work for me. I'll pay you a wage. I'll give you housing, food, all that. So it was the same amenities under slavery. But here's the catch, right? I'm going to charge you for everything I give to you. Mm-hmm. And the charge for all those amenities was larger than the fee or the, you know, the, the income, the payment that they got from working the land. So actually, in a way, it's worse than slavery. Because they worked in the same conditions, same hours, right? But instead of, you know, working towards the eventual freedom, which some, you know, slave owners did, they, you know, eventually gave their, um, some of them gave them small fees, but a lot of them were working towards, you know, getting their papers to be free. This actually made them even more in debt to their slave owners. They actually owed their slave owners, Mm -hmm. which put them in a new kind of slavery, which will be further and developed coming into our um, 20th and 21st century financial slavery mm-hmm. right so and so note. these these imprisonments and false allegations or petty crimes um painted the american the african-american population um as brutist and animalistic and savage and many mm-hmm. other things and the power of the media even back then really changed the way that america saw um our black communities so the these imprisonment they like these things like these small little things like right. loitering and things like that nonviolent things right. they would twist them in a way and they'd be like oh well we give we gave uh, the black population rights and see what they do with it right and so during this time many lynchings occurred and the kkk returned to power mm. and so the, the power of me like the entire especially in the south uh, the entire world was against the black population mm-hmm and um, shortly after that, um, the discrimination and prejudice—the uh, pre- prejudice of African Americans—shifted to something more legal. Mm. Um, this is the time of Jim Crow and segregation, and I'm just gonna kind of go through this so we can kind of see how it steps up to the war on drugs. Go ahead. But uh, you know, then after that, you see the civil rights movement, and uh, because of this, discrimination had to become less obvious. Mm. You know, they had to blend it into day-to-day life. It's becoming less PC by, right. the, by the decade. So shortly after the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1963 was passed, there was an increase in crime. Hmm. Right? And the white majority in charge decided they took this coincidence. And they said this was because they argued. They were like, this is because the African-American population was given certain freedoms. And... They, in the 1970s, mass incarceration of African-Americans took full effect because the white majority of the people in power 
said, oh, we see this increase in crime. Right. It's because the African-Americans have been given some freedom. So now we're going to imprison them. When it was really just a matter of Mm. every, like there's drugs going through places and not that many. And it wasn't just African-Americans. It was just a general increase in crime. It was just a coincidence. And so then you see, this is kind of goes into um, Richard Nixon um, as he goes into his presidency. Right. This is the, and it's funny that this is kind of the decade that, you know, crack and cocaine started popping up. You think that's a coincidence? Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> that was purely rhetorical, by the way. If you didn't get that. <laughs> I did. So Richard Nixon preached for law and order and, uh, he, he, he called for a war on crime when he was you know, going for his, uh, he campaigned for his 1968 presidential election. Right. And he said, we must, as a country, wage total war against public enemy number one in the United States, which he said was the problem of dangerous drugs. Right. <laughs> and so under this, he, he goes and says it's the, the problem against dangerous drugs this declaration kind of gave us the, it kind of coined the phrase, the war on drugs. Right. And a lot of it was kind of just talking so that he could become president. Right. Um, and so basically like him talking to this on a natural, like a, a national scale, it kind of talked about how drug addiction and dependency, he decided it was a crime issue instead That's, of a health yeah, issue. Right. See, let's harp on that word crime, right? Because he said it was a war on crime, more specifically war on drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So, who has the power to to de- to basically determine what is a crime and what is not a crime? I mean, the people in the, power, yeah, <laughs> the federal government, yeah. right? So once he deemed that doing drugs was a crime, he was able to effectively kind of put it in this little nice neat box, right? Because, like you said, it's a it's a it's a human issue, mm-hmm. it's a health issue, mm-hmm. it's not a crime issue. But once he was able to paint it like that, he was able to, you know it gave him easy access to these communities where, you know, drug problems festered. You know what I'm saying? So, continue. I mean, we can talk about present day before we move on, how uh, certain people of privilege, certain people of money, um, it's a health issue for them when they mm-hmm. become addicted and they overdose. You know, there's a big misconception that there are more drug users in low-income communities than higher-income communities. No, it just means that if you're in a low-income community and you're doing drugs and you get caught, you're going to prison. It's also way easier to get caught, right? If you are in a high income and you get caught, mm-hmm. you get an intervention. You get sent to rehab. Rehab. You get right. to try again. Community service. People rally around you. Mm-hmm. When you're a junkie on the street and you're black especially, no one cares about you because they think you put yourself in that position. You know, no one takes the time to understand why you're in that position to do them drugs in the first place. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So during his campaign, talking about the war on drugs, Nixon and his cabinet legally attacked the anti-war left. Uh, you know, like the hippies, you know. Right. This is back during the time of, like, Vietnam and things like that. So, right. And, and uh, the black people. And uh, actually, this was confirmed by one of Nixon's advisors, uh, John. We'll call him John E. because that last name is real difficult. <laughs> in an interview. And uh, he said the Nixon can't, and I quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. He mm. said, we knew that we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, then crimi- crimi- criminalizing both heavily, 
we could disrupt these communities. He goes on to say, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Mm-hmm. End quote. Mm-hmm. So they know Nixon and his, his cabinet knew what they were doing, and they knew that they were doing it in a legal way. Mm-hmm. They were attacking. And so they talk about, did, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Of course did. they did. Um, during the Ronald Reagan administration, not mm-hmm. to digress a little bit more, but you know the war on drugs still heavily. It was carried on by Ronald Reagan too. That's right? when it really starts to get physical, and exactly. I, have, I have a bunch on that too. Exactly, right? It says the Reagan administration tried to overthrow the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. The planes that secretly brought arms to the Contras turned around and brought cocaine back to America, again shielded by U.S. and for- law enforcement by the CIA. So the government used these corporate, these government corporations. To basically carry out, you know, their drug-related missions. They're, they're under the guise that we're protecting our people. But there's clear evidence that, you know, they're bringing in these drugs to what? Perpetuate a problem, right? And what is that problem? Like you said, black people, right? I want to say this is, this is not a It sounds like a conspiracy theory when I say this, but it's really not. There are government corporations that, in essence, started the drug trade. In these low-income communities, it's almost like they would plant these uh, cocaine, LSD, heroin, all these hard drugs in these low-income communities to be able to have an excuse, like you said, to go in there, to run in their homes, to criminalize them, to arrest them, right? To have an excuse to carry out their mission to obviously suppress black people Mm -hmm. and the black voice, right? So continue. So this campaign um, of preaching of a war on crime and and a war on drugs... This was uh, Nixon's Southern strategy. Mm. And it was a way to... I don't like the way that sounds. It was a way to take formerly starch um, Democrats under the Republican fold, kind of uh, get the Southern vote. Right. Um, But it didn't stop with Nixon, and you already kind of touched on a little bit, but about Mm -hmm. 10 years later, uh, after the prison population had almost doubled, uh, Ronald Reagan was elected. Excuse me. Ronald Reagan took Nixon's ideas about a war on drugs and really ran with it. Um, when drug use wasn't a large problem at the time, Reagan was determined to address it. Right. So, po- like, popular polls um, in this day and age didn't see drug use as a problem. It right. wasn't that big of a thing. You're saying back then it didn't yes. see it right. Yes. Okay. But Nixon made it a problem. Of course. And... Uh, just a little tidbit. His uh, Nancy Reagan, the first lady, mm-hmm. she had this little campaign. She was, she was like, just say no. <laughs> and uh, not that I don't disagree with that. And it, there's a certain amount of education to it because right. drug prevention is a pretty big thing. But right. It was just, you know. But you also got to consider the drug trade was fairly new. Mm-hmm. All these new drugs popping up in the 70s and 80s. No one really wants to, you know, to. Well, it's during his time. The, the it actual... wasn't during Nixon's. It was during his time that right. crack came about. Right. And so that's when it really starts to take off. Exactly. But uh, during this time, due to underfunding of the government programs, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Right? So then you're thinking about the type of economic status. Mm-hmm. And during the time, they were calling it the worst economic status since the Great Depression. Mm. So you, you kind of get that in your head. You know, this is not a good time for the economy. The rich are getting richer. 
because of the, how the government is and the economy is, government programs that are supposed to help low-income communities right. are getting underfunded, so the poor are getting poorer. And so as there's an increase in poverty, at the same time that this is happening, crack starts to hit the streets. Right. Okay? Crack is basically smokable cocaine, for, who, for those who don't know. It could be sold in small doses and was fairly cheap, much cheaper than cocaine because it's, you know, it's cocaine mm-hmm. mixed up with much cheaper thing like baking mm-hmm. soda and things it's way like more that. accessible yeah. cheaper because of this crack was a low-income drug it went through a lot of poverty-stricken neighborhoods and cocaine was a more suburban middle and upper class drug right shortly after the arrival of crack it was heavily criminalized with mandatory minimum sentences mm. uh minimum sentences that cocaine something that literally made crack did not have the same of and to give you an idea of what I mean by that, and if you had one ounce of cocaine on you, mm-hmm. and I had, I don't know, if you had one ounce of crack, right? Right. One ounce, and I had a hundred ounces of regular cocaine, we would get the same prison time. Mm. One ounce of crack, a hundred ounces of cocaine. Why do you think that is, Zach? I mean, I, it, it's because you didn't see a lot of this powder cocaine going through low income you didn't see a lot of this powder mm-hmm. cocaine going through a lot of black communities a lot of hispanic right. communities those people who had cocaine were not the people that they wanted to imprison right everybody was doing like you know across the board everybody was doing drugs but crack was in these low income areas so they were going to heavily right criminalize this so they could imprison people for near life sentences right and strip them away from their communities and also when you look at it you know whites being in a higher socioeconomic class in a lot of these low-income blacks right mm-hmm. the drug cocaine was something that wasn't you know too expensive to them cocaine is an expensive drug mm-hmm. right but when you're the average junkie scrounging for you know the, your next fix right you want something cheap and accessible and crack was much cheaper and much crack was that cheap accessible drug mm-hmm. right so it made it, it definitely has some racial undertones there some racist racial undertones, some prejudice in there, right? It's almost seemed like it was sculpted for these low-income communities. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? You see, oh, what, yeah. you see what I'm hinting at here? Yeah, you know I, 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 I hear what you're saying. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, these targeted our, our minority communities, especially our, our black and Latino communities, and by the end of Reagan's presidency, hundreds of thousands of minorities sat in the U.S. prison system for near-life sentences due to Reagan's war on drugs. Right. And um, around this time, black people, especially black men, uh, were disproportionately shown arrested and in handcuffs across the news. Right. Like Like, a number that was almost higher than how much they were really getting arrested. They were overshown. So it was exacerbating, you know, sentiment. Well, it was again, like I said, even back, like right right after the 13th Amendment was passed, they're again trying to paint this picture that black men and black people were aggressive and criminal. Because, you know, presidents, they they abide to public opinion. Mm -hmm. And when you crease public opinion and public outcry against a certain issue, right, they're going to be on your side. So really by doing this, by vilifying those who, you know, did drugs, no one had pity for them because that's what no one wants their kids to be subjected to that, right? The white people especially. So I feel like that was their main mode of saying, okay, garnering support for their cause to be able to keep doing this, 
And you're right. It was like a, you said Southern agenda. That's how they got their vote. Essentially, they appealed to what they wanted. They weren't too keen on black people, right? But slavery's out, I guess. You know? mm. Lynching's not too PC, even though it still happened. Right, right. right. But you can't just go up and kill a black man with no consequence right. anymore. Mm-hmm. So then what do you do, right? You make it more legal. Right. And uh, so the, the media, there's a trend um, ever since... At the end of the Civil War, mm-hmm. there's a trend where media portrays a cliche that the black population is untamable, aggressive, and animal-like. Right. And it's because of that that these these prisons throughout the years have had so much support because then you have these white people who are like, they see these things on the news and they're like, they need to be in jail. I'm glad I didn't see that guy on the street. Right. I'm glad he's in prison. They deserve to be in there. And so it, it's a constant thing, and that's another thing that we'll definitely talk about more in depth is prisons. But right, and the war on drugs. That's kind of what I have. They're really hand in hand, like yes. you said before. Oh yeah, they're really hand in hand. I think that they go very hand in hand. That's why I kind of want. I talked about it hand in hand. Um, but the war on drugs is just like a piece of that entire pie. I would say it's a it's a big part of what big piece. stemmed a lot of the growth in prison systems. Right, 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 right. So, you gave us a little bit of history on the war on drugs. Yes. So I think we should kind of look at where things are in the current day, mm-hmm. because we need to see if this is still an existing problem. Has it been solved, and what's being done to solve the war on drugs? Is it even a problem? Is it worth giving it the energy it needs to, right? I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of listeners be like, okay, well, if it was a problem then, is it a problem now, right? But let's look at it. Nearly 80%, then this is just a general fact about uh, blacks in prison. Nearly 80% of people in federal prison and almost 60% of people in state prison for drug offenses are black or Latino. So that's just ghost out to minorities, Right. Research shows that prosecutors are twice as likely to pursue a mandatory minimum sentence for black people as for white people charged with the same offense. Among people who received a mandatory minimum sentence in 2011, 38% were Latino and 31% of black. So what is this what is this suggesting, right? That this level of discrimination prejudice is still ever present, is still alive and well and well in every stage of our criminal justice system, right? So we talk about prison reform. We, you don't want to you don't want to get too much of that, but it, like you said, it goes hand in hand. We can go hand. as much as we want. Right, it, it goes hand <laughs> in hand. It does, it does. Right? When, now back then, I would say the pervasive, you know, the, the big drug back then, the prevalent drug back then was crack. It was newly introduced. Crack was easily accessible. It was easily smokable. It was the drug of choice for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But now, what is that drug today? What do we see people being over-criminalized, over-sentenced, you know, disproportionately jailed for, right? Mm-hmm. Marijuana. And it's funny that this things like over-sentencing for marijuana is still happening when, you know, in a lot of states, it's being decriminalized. As it should be. As it should be, right? Because we can talk, I can talk about marijuana all day. <laughs> it's 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 a helpful drug not to me if, if you're listening mom but it just kind of evolved in a way 
right? Because now the really easily accessible drug to a lot of our teens and youth, our black youth, is marijuana, right? So instead, because, you know, crack is, you know, it's not popular among the youth anymore. No. It's always found a way to to sort of evolve, right? So I want to talk about how bad it's become in our current day. The number of black men in prison, which is 792,000, by the way, has already equaled the number of enslaved men in 1820, right? And if this trend continues for about 10 more years, there will be as many people in prisons, as many black people in prisons, excuse me, as black people enslaved in 1860, which was the peak of slavery. Mm-hmm. So that goes back to what you said about the 13th Amendment. Is slavery really over? In fact, it's so bad that it's about to eclipse. It's about to eclipse the actual numbers of slavery. You know, And people argue, but like you can literally look at other countries in the world and compare. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why the U.S., 5% of the world's population, should have 25% of the world's prisoners. One no in every four prisoners in the entire world is here in America. That's horrible. And you, they, people think it's just, oh, it's just a That's coincidence. Disgusting. Oh, we just have a little more crime. Right. No, it's because we have legal slavery. Right. And our minorities, especially our black population, as being disproportionately arrested and put in prisons. What a lot of people don't realize, it's that it's not about black people doing more drugs than white people. There's no inherent, you know, there's no inherent you know, idea ingrained in it. It's not an instinct for black people to want to do drugs, mm-hmm. right? It's what's around them, you know? It also comes down to policing because low-income communities are way too over-policed. So it doesn't truly represent how many people are doing drugs. You can't survey how many people are doing drugs. So all the numbers that are coming out and all these arrests, you can only see how many people have been arrested, but it doesn't show how many police officers were in the areas that they've taken these samples from. It doesn't show how many people they've let go for some minor drug offenses that they've arrested, but didn't decide to let them go for some minor reason. It doesn't display the whole, it doesn't show the whole story. Black people don't inherently do more drugs than white people. That's just the fact, right? But it's painted like that to, like you said, perpetuate a stereotype that black people are, you know, desperate and broke they make poor decisions aggressive you know they have to rely on drugs that's not true at all Mm -hmm. drug abuse uh, among the wealthy is ever prevalent i mean you see it all the time right but those communities are policed differently there's not as much as emphasis as detaining someone in um um a a higher income community because a lot first of all a lot of those communities are all white centered a lot of a lot of a lot of white people in these high end communities that aren't policed the same, right? So you look at that, and actually, a lot of people also don't know that there are more white drug dealers than black drug dealers, and we're talking about dealing, not doing dealing, right? Which is an active crime, selling drugs, mm. right? Because I, it doesn't you can't write it off on your tax or anything like that, so. They consider that a crime, you know, government and stuff. But (laughs) that attests to the fact that 
black people. This is not a. It's, this is drugs. It's not a, a a black. It's not a black centered issue. And it's not even an income centered issue. Doing drugs, is, it's not human nature, but it's human circumstance. If drugs are put somewhere, there are going to be people who want to do them, black or white. And they've tried to justify these numbers. Oh, black people are getting arrested at a higher rate. They have to be doing. They tried to justify that with the fact that they try to justify that. The fact that black people do more and that been more arrested with the fact that black people are okay. Well, this what does that perpetuate that black people are desperate, lazy, they're bad people, they do more drugs, they stay away from them, don't be like a black person, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. What does it perpetuate, right? And a lot of people don't want to talk about the effects of drug charges on this community. Did you know that one in 13 black people of voting age who are convicted the right, who are denied the right to vote because they've been convicted of a minor drug offense or a felony drug offense cannot vote? Do you understand the implications of that, Zach? I, I definitely do. I feel like that takes a lot away from being able to put people in office that could maybe help us make a change in our communities. Right. And that's not a coincidence. And I think people need to understand that as we go week by week and we talk about each individual problem, the reason why it's so big is because each of these little areas in our system compounds. Mm-hmm. So... They did this war on drugs so they could throw more black people into jail. And by throwing more people in jail, they make sure that it's on the media mm-hmm. so that the general population who has no information on it except for what they watch in the evening news right. automatically assumes that they're in jail because they're bad people, right. which then perpetuates that all black people are bad people. Mm-hmm. So then there's, you know, then they put them into school systems that don't have as much money. And then you put drugs and you over-police. It's a cycle. It's just a constant. It doesn't come from just one place. It's not just mm-hmm. police killing people. It is a systematic oppression that is over all areas of life. And that's what people don't understand a lot. It's, it's a multifaceted issue. Yes. It's not just one face. We're never going to run out of ways to talk about this. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be another angle where... The white majority, mm-hmm. these people in power, are going to like uh, oppress black people. Right. It it almost feels as if you know whenever we as black people take one step towards progress, right? It seems like the goal it, it moves further away, because like you said, it evolves in certain aspects. It's like a, a three headed monster that turns into a four headed monster. You cut a, you cut off one head. It grows back and another one grows with it. It becomes more of an issue. We thought we were done with slavery, but it's back in a different way. And people try to, like, I was talking to somebody, and they didn't understand what I meant by people of power. Mm-hmm. Did you just hear what I, what I was talking about earlier? I know exactly what you were talking about. Our two presidents, two people who we had in office. Right. Reagan and Nixon. People don't understand the power that presidents have in influencing policy. They may not be able to actively, you know, create. They can create, but they can't actually pass it themselves. Those two men and their cabinets perpetuated the way that prisons have grown and the way that the the people of color are are looked at in our current society. Right. By saying that they all do drugs 
and they all do things that are worth putting in prisons. Right. And so when I talk about people of power, I literally mean people Mm -hmm. who are making day-to-day conversations and issues about this. And you can go and you can look about some of the things that they were talking about um, when when they were president. And a good documentary to go look at is The 13th. Um, Mm -hmm. That was one of the ones I was watching. It... You can go and you can kind of see, like, when um, Nixon was campaigning, he was like, "Right, oh, we're going to we're gonna beef up our police systems three times what they are now. Mm-hmm. Three times. Why would that ever be necessary? The problem is not that you're not arresting enough white people for it. It's the fact that, you know, there should be more of an emphasis on rehabilitating people for these issues rather than you know throwing their life away in a prison writing them away so that you can do whatever you want with them that just comes down to a case of morality and ethical and ethics right it comes down to do you care about the people you're serving and it was easily you could you said it yourself presidents like nixon and reagan they had an agenda against a certain demographic I guess it's uh, yeah, a minority demographic exactly. that they could pick on. Exactly. You know, they they picked on the anti-war left. They picked on well, Nixon did. They picked on the black population because it wasn't a, a majority, right. a majority. So then they you pick on these minorities because then you're getting that southern white vote. Now you're president. You're basically giving you know southern white voters a get out of jail free card and being able to do something racist. Mm-hmm. Because it's under the guise that we're improving our country. But what you really are is you're improving, you're sustaining, actually, the view of the country that a lot of white people didn't want to change. Um, they didn't want to change. They didn't want to see change in the way their country was being ran. And I talked about um, Nixon's advisor, you know, and what they, he literally explains the Southern strategy. Right. Uh, what I didn't include, and probably because there's a lot of racist slurs, and I just, you know, I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> I mean, I would have read it. Uh, maybe I'll show you another day. Please. But I, I have a good idea. Um, do your best. I'm not gonna, you know. <laughs> but Nixon's, and it's in the documentary, the 13th. It's probably about I don't know, 30 minutes in. You can go right. look at it and re- re- listen to it. But uh, oh no, Reagan's campaign specialist his, his campaign strategist literally goes and he's like you know 50 years ago we could say the n-word mm-hmm. you know you just that's all you would say and then you'd get all the way on your side then it moves to something like states rights you know that's how you now it's on a completely economic it right it's on a completely economic level right you're talking about things that are just about the economy but there's an underlying tone, right? Mm. The underlying tone is right. saying that blacks are going to get hurt more than whites. He literally says that. So then we're looking at these are presidents of the United States, right? And both of their advisors are talking about how both of their campaigns and mm. both of the times that they're in office, they're, they're geared towards legally right. and kind of underlyingly oppressing the black people. So are you familiar with the phrase that history is written by the side of the winners? Oh, absolutely. You said before that... Well, dude, not to cut you off, but like... And like 90% of the shit that I looked mm-hmm. at, and I just... Like, all the stuff that I'm talking about, part of my French, like, 
did we ever learn this in school? Not at all. And you know why? Two reasons. One, history is written by the winners. Right. Two, it's too political to mm-hmm. talk about. You know, it's too conspiracy. True. This because shit is the real. CIA is involved. <laughs> the CIA is involved. I have I have some stuff on that later, but so yeah. like we're literally not being taught proper history. Like right. we're skipping parts of our history that are so important. Right. And because we're ignoring it, all of these people are growing up thinking that there's not a problem. Right. And so then you get to something that's like my age where you're 19, 20 years old. You see and, it though. No, I do see it. But it's part like I didn't know any of this three months ago. Right. Right. But it's the fact that I had to take like now at 19 years old, I had to take the time. To teach right. myself to when educate. I should have known all this already. It should have been taught. But it's not taught. Right. And they don't want you to know. I mean, but that's how, you know, oppression starts. It starts in right. the classroom. Right. If you're able to control the flow of knowledge into an area, you're able to limit what someone can do with said knowledge. If they don't have the knowledge, they can't act on it. They're still kept in that ignorant situation. You can't do anything you don't know how to do. Right. So that's why, to digress a little bit, there was such an emphasis and we talked about this actually in our little book club. Shout out, shout out, uh, Kyla and Xavier. In our little book club, uh, our OBBO sponsored book club, was that, you know, there was a, a more of an emphasis on nonviolent leaders. Or mm-hmm. like Martin Luther and Rosa Parks saying that they actually ended slavery, uh, uh, oppression. And then they, uh, and if racism. any of you guys really know who Malcolm X is and the things that mm-hmm. he talks about. Oh, please, you already know what I was about to bring up. Please go look at right. videos of him. Please. please read his works because right. he's not the person that they're painting him to be. Right. He's not like a super radicalist, violent man. Right. And a lot of that, a lot of the reason they painted him like that was because they didn't want to give young black students the idea that maybe change can be achieved in another way. The peaceful, nonviolent stuff, while it was good and effective, right, it was what they allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the white, oppre- the white oppressors and white persimmons would rather have you sitting at a counter in your local community rather than you start a goddamn war. And listen, I love that MOK movie they play every year. <laughs> but why are we not watching a different one right. every year? Why are we not watching documentaries about Malcolm X? Why right. are we not learning about other things every year? Right. But going back, we, we, we sorry we've digressed. We we've digressed. <laughs> <laughs> but going back into it, you said I said history is written by the winners. Yes. Right. Yes. And you said before that you know there was this. It 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 appeared that there was you you said that the economy got worse during Reagan. Yes. Right. It was, it was. You said the rich got richer and the poor got poorer, which gave the illusion that the economy was doing better. But in fact, you know, for a lot of, for a certain demographic, it got a lot worse. Right. Right. So. Well, he, he, when he was, not to cut you off again, just to kind of. Go ahead, man. Sorry, bro. Sorry. (laughs) He's got all this information. Do what you got to do. Reagan, like when he was running. He had the he had his southern strategy, uh-huh. but then he was also he's like we're gonna cut taxes for the rich, mm-hmm. and then he got there and he was like economy shit, right? And he was like so to be able to fix this we're gonna cut government funding for low income neighborhoods, right? You know? So these these programs that right. help like w- like welfare and things like yeah, that. yeah he was a big opponent of welfare right I do know that yeah but that's why you know. To this day, there are still people bragging about Reagan and all his policies, saying Reaganomics is what sparked our economy into what it is today. Right? He is the founder of 
our uh, you know our economy he he is to thank we have to thank him for all that he did right but like like i said history's real outside of winter so that didn't represent the true the true mm-hmm. state of the situation mm-hmm. like you said the rich got richer the poor got poorer so if you are a black person or a latino or hispanic or some type of other minority in the in the 80s during reagan's term you didn't see all that economic gain that everyone's talking about. Right, because the, the help you were getting from the government was pulled. Exactly. And so then, at the exact same time, pretty much, crack rolls through. Mm-hmm. And so now, you're not getting the help that you need, but there's a now there's an opportunity for you to make some money. Right. You get into the crack game. You get exactly. sent to prison for almost your entire life. Exactly. Especially when our, you know, our role models, you know, they were making a lot of money off crack cocaine, and and when you're a black a little black kid, you see them making all that money, right? You think you can do that too. So there was also an emphasis on, you know, black people glorifying this, this this drug related lifestyle because they saw you know that small percentage of black people making dividends off of it. And then the other hand, you're you're a young black uh, boy and. Your father gets taken from you at a young age. Right. And you don't see him at all growing up mm-hmm. because he went to jail for crack. Right. So on top of that, we talked about, you know, like I keep saying, the history is real outside of winners. You said it evolved into oppressing black people economically under mm-hmm. the guise of economics. Right. Mm-hmm. It ties into that. Right. Because that's if that's not the truth, we did not see all the economic prosperity that Republicans, even modern day Republicans, like to brag about with Reagan, mm-hmm. right? Well, Nixon and Reagan kind of formed what the Republican Party is today, right? Because it used to be a little different. Of course, uh, you know, it used to be switched actually. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? a lot but of their ideal switch. It, it's p- pulled across because of their Southern strategy. That's how right. they got all those old Democrats to become Republicans. It's right. because of how they've preached, you know, their 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 war on drugs. Their you know, all mm-hmm. these economic things that are mm-hmm. really aren't economic. It's simply evolved. Yes. Right. So on top of that, I think it's a, a perfect segue into solutions for this ever-growing problem. Right? Because we talked about the effects that affected families. It's a health issue. Mm-hmm. It, it exacerbates poverty. Right? All which are factions that serve to keep black people in the position that they are. That they are. It's evolved. People want to say that slavery's gone and that the effects of slavery are gone too. This is this is a direct. I mean, I think we've laid out this case clearly. This is a direct. While far down the line, not even that far actually. Hundred years, people think that's a lot of time. It's really not. But far, it's further down the line. People think that it's it's we make um, it's becoming less and less. But and, you know, we've seen a lot of progress. But the reality is. I want to say little progress has been made. Yeah. Because I think with black people in our movement, our our path has been linear. We see our goal, it's a, we think it's a straight line to it, right? But in actuality, the goal keeps swerving. It's multidimensional. And I feel like as black people, we also have to do a better job of adjusting our perception, our motivations, and our executions towards getting to the goal because as i said it evolves and as zach said it laid out perfectly it evolves it changes mm-hmm. there's always going to be a set a different faction and you know there's still more that we haven't even talked about 
that are going to serve to oppress black people. But let's talk about solutions, right? Because it's easy to outline a problem, mm-hmm. you know? That's definitely way harder it's, to find It's definitely hard to find solutions, right? And, uh, you know, all these presidents like Reagan and Nixon thought the solution was to criminalize drugs, mm-hmm. right? There's an analogy of the carrot and the stick, right? You put a carrot in front of a donkey's head. It motivates it to go forward to try and get the carrot. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're motivating it with a good thing, right? You're solving the issue of the donkey not moving with a reward, right? And then there's the stick. If you hit the donkey on the ass with a stick, it's going to run. It's going to go forward, right? Can't argue that. Now, in which direction? You can't control it. And that's what I think. I think that's a perfect analogy to display the war on drugs, right? It was under the guise that we're gonna, it's going to take us to where we need to be as a country. It's going to put us in better spot economically. It's going to make our community safer, right? It's going to leave a lot of people healthier, right? If we scare people with the idea that they could go to jail for a long time, they won't do it, mm-hmm. right? But when you compound that or you add that into the mix with over-policing in communities for small offenses that would actually occur in every single community, not just low income, right? It causes that donkey to swerve. In other words, it causes that that goal to actually not do what it was intended, making all these laws, right, that mentioned any sort of drug offense ineffective, makes them bad laws in a sense. They don't do their job, right? So over-policing has not solved anything, right? And it's also not going to be solved by arresting more white people for the issue. Like I said before, it's not the fact that we're upset more white people haven't been arrested. It's the fact that too many black people have been arrested for the issue. Too many people, period. Too many people, period. There's no reason why 2.8 million, I mean 2.3 million mm-hmm. should be in prisons. No sense, right? We need to rethink this drug war paradigm. Right. We need to urge our local state and federal governments to to sort of reanalyze how effective this war on drugs is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think some good solution to that is you look at the budget. We could restructure funding, you know, give some discretionary funds and resource allocation and place more of a priority on substance abuse treatment rather than and prevention outreach rather than drug law enforcement. We need to put an emphasis on the fact that this is a health problem. It's a mental issue as well. Addiction is a mental issue. And it's not an easy thing to deal with. And that doesn't get solved if you throw them in a jail for 18 years. You know what I'm saying? Forgive them decades in jail. That does nothing to solve that issue. All it does is take away lives. Right. Really, you know? It makes it worse. In fact, you have successfully ruined their chance of seeing a better life. Because people say, oh, prison's supposed to make you a better person. It doesn't do that at all. No, prisons here are not too... Because prisons should be geared towards reform. You know, Mm -hmm. like, you've done a bad thing, you should go to prison. You should pay your penance, but also learn how to be a member of society. But the thing about that is, when you have a, a, a group of people that have these generalizations, these horrible stigmas and stereotypes right. about black people. Like, yeah, I mean, I, they believe that if you've done all these drugs and you're a junkie, you go to jail for that, you're beyond rehabilitation. Right. 
So they'd rather throw you in jail and rot away because that's what you quote unquote deserve. Right. And I don't think one of my solutions would be to decriminalize possession of any drug. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we should really be focusing on rehabilitation. Right. I don't, I mean, you go and you look at other countries and there's just, there's not the same level of nonviolent people in prison. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that prison should be for the violence, you know, the, the, the murderers, the, the aggravated assault, you know, Rapists. We shouldn't be putting people who just have drugs in their possession in jail for 10 plus years. Because other than themselves, who do you really, well, obviously you hurt other people, but other than themselves, who did you actively harm? Now there's mental harm. I mean, it's literally been shown that it it. fixes though. Because you can go and you can look at the celebrities who get the second chance. You know, the celebrities who get to go to rehab. Right. If we just put more money in these types of facilities instead of having all these damn prisons, you know, we have the money. We're just not putting it in the right place. Exactly. And it's they don't want to put it in the right place. Look at that defense fund, boy. They just want to, dude. Oh my gosh. We can talk about (laughs) the prison money. We can talk about the military funding. We can talk about anything. Money is there. Right. They just don't want to make people better because they are benefiting off off of all these people being in Being prisons. able to take advantage yes. of them. So, moving on. I think that we should, you, you mentioned minimum mandatory sentences, right? I think we should review and revise drug sentencing, right? And we should increase the use of community-based sanctions so like community development projects mm-hmm. for drug offenders because if you're going to use them at least use them for the public's benefit not a company's benefit the public's benefit and it should be built so that they're learning trade skills exactly you know how many how much of a shortage there are for trades mm-hmm. in terms of like plumbing those are valuable skills and they earn a lot of money and it's needed right there's not a lot of people going into it it's not a pretty job but it needs to be done. It makes good money. Right. And it's usually only two years. Right. And basically, like you said, we should eliminate mandatory minimum sentences. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, this ties into more the racial aspect of drug inequities and disparities seen in drug arrest. We should conduct more intensive and comprehensive analysis on the racial disparities in all phases of the law. So that comes from arresting to sentencing, you know, and parole, all that, every phase of it, Mm -hmm. right? And we need to devise ways to ensure that drug enforcement and enforcement of drug laws does not disproportionately burden black communities. And that seems like an unattainable goal, right? Because to the naked eye, you know, bias is bias. Mm -hmm. How do you solve the police the police's bias against a particular demographic. Right, so in previous weeks, we talked about defunding the police and emphasizing better uses of resources in helping solve the community's needs, right? I feel like this is this is a first step towards in essentially reforming, reconstructing the whole idea of police. We got to make sure that, you know, we got to, you know, attack their biases and their attitudes, you got to keep that in check first because that affects their actions. For the average human, you think about something and then you do it. You don't do it without rhyme or reason. That doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? 
So moving on, we need to assess the extent to which considerations of race may influence police decision making, including decisions regarding the neighborhoods in which police are deployed for drug law enforcement purposes, whom to arrest, particularly for low level offenses such as drug possessions. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is also another look at police, uh, the, po- the police system as a whole. We need to attack the, basically the way they're being ran. Right. So that forces us, this forces us, this will force us basically to look at how decisions are being made, how management works. Right. What rules and regulations are in place that perpetuate and allow these racially charged arrests to keep happening in these low-income communities, right? We have to change the way the, 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 the power structure is even made, right? We have to challenge that continually. And I think it's ever-present in our police system because at the end of the day, they carry out the will of the government, right? And when you have a government that's actively shown they don't care about black people, the police are going to carry out that will day by day. So we have to look at every single regulation and and rule and law, right? And we have to look at how they're, they're dispersed, right? Patrols and routes they do, right? Because to every city, there's, you know, different communities, right? There's, there's richer communities, poorer communities. We need to, you know, see and analyze you know, are they actually are these communities being policed equitably? Are they being policed fair, or is one community being targeted rather than another? And finally, we need to monitor patterns in pedestrian and vehicle stops, and other police activities to determine if unwarranted racial disparities exist that suggest racial profiling or other race-based decision making, and to take appropriate action to eliminate racially disparate dis- dis- disparate treatment. So keep our police in check. Basically. Really. Basically. And, you know, none, like, none of those ideas are new. At all. If you go and look at, like, and you know, we talked about politics, and we didn't we didn't release that one, but we, we have a good base on you it. You just love to bring that up. Listen, man. But anyways, you go and you look at, like, the Joe Biden um, mm-hmm. campaign webpage. He has a lot of these solutions laid out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these people will, a lot of these um, government officials, a lot of these politics guys and girls, um, they'll address them, you know, in their campaigns. They'll be like, right. oh, this is what we're going to do. But then a lot of, uh, Joe Biden has been in politics for damn near 50 years. Right. What, what has he really done except talk about it? Oh, you know? boy. Don't get me started on so, this. So not just him, but, you know, like they're. Officials will talk about it. They're not afraid to right. talk about it. Right. But how much change have we really seen? Little to none. So in my opinion. So then what who how do we if you know, if we're trying to find people who we're gonna vote for and they say, <sighs> Oh, this is what difficult. we're gonna do. That oh, this is what difficult. we're gonna do, you know, this is what we have laid out, and you're like, Yes, that's what we need to do. Then you vote for these people and they get in. And you see little to no change. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people are still apathetic towards voting because of the idea that, you know, there's all these, you know, candidates, they make all these promises. Dude, I mean, for the... They sound great, you know what I'm saying, to the to the average untrained ear, right? Mm-hmm. They sound amazing, and you vote for that person. 
and you're expecting some sort of some form of significant change that they preached on and that they earn your vote on and then you don't see it. I don't remember the exact number, so don't quote me on this. I won't. But something like a hundred million voters Ooh-wee. for Hillary and Trump. The hundred million people who are eligible to vote did not vote. Right. A hundred million. And and the the apparently the in the way our society works, that's the only way to keep our leaders in check is to kick them out of their seat. You know, I think we were talking about this a little bit. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of to digress a little bit. You know, nah, we're at the end. We're at the end. We can go ahead and just talk. You, know? <laughs> you were talking about how to really change the the structure of how our society works. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a revolution. Absolutely. And a lot of rev- to a lot of people, revolutions means voting in new leaders, voting in new laws. You know create new legislation you know appointing things that could change our way in in the in the way that you know the our our government sees fit right but i i think you i I think you know maybe it's time for some more radical change you know we were talking about you know maybe talking about a second civil war man i mean like it it's not as radical as everybody thinks because you go and you look at the last hundred years right and you see what quote unquote peaceful things have done. Right. And all it's really done is made racism and discrimination more discreet. Right. You know, more legal, more unobvious to the, the you know, the eye that's not looking. And so you get to this point to where it's like, well what can we really do? And the reason why people don't want it to be a civil war too is because People have spent, you know, their entire lives, they spent all their money on their businesses and things like this. They're afraid to lose mm-hmm. something. Right. But you think about how much was probably lost in the first Civil War. Right. I think that at certain points to make real change, you have to be okay with losing something personally. And I think that ties into, you know, the idea that there is, you know, change has to happen a certain way. That's why I'm not too big on all the progress, quote-unquote progress, we made in the last 250 years. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean nothing, obviously, because it's put me in the position I am now to be, to be able to freely talk about this without being whipped, right? So I appreciate the progress, but there's still so much more we need to do. You know, it, it feels like all the victories that we've made are all just things that they've allowed to happen. Because like I said, it ties into Martin Luther King. Why did they really give him the stage to become the most prominent civil rights leader? What was his agenda, right? His agenda was integration. And we talked about this a lot, Mm -hmm. right? His agenda was integration. And peaceful. And peaceful and nonviolent. Right. And that's what they want us to do. His way, he disrupted a, a counter, you know, or a bus stop or bus station. But he never really went at the health of the oppressor, right? And that was truly my only issue with him. I love Martin Luther King. Don't don't take this the wrong way. In fact, I hate I have to preface it with that because what I'm saying makes perfect sense, right? Integration and assimilation ultimately leads to disintegration, right? We fought too much to be a part of a community that didn't accept us in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to look at why did so why did they allow Martin Luther King 
you know, become so prevalent? Why did they accept a lot of his policy? Why did they allow him to meet with the president? Because they didn't have to let any of that happen because it didn't happen too much with Malcolm X. They didn't want to meet with Malcolm X. Right. Because his side of change was too radical for them at the time. It was mm-hmm. too much change too fast. Right. And then we start looking at economics. He was preaching about what? Segregating ourselves from the white economy. Right. So what is the who does that ultimately hurt when you have a lot of buying power? White people. Mm hmm. Because like you, like we mentioned, black people have the highest buying power in the United States. And then you take them out of your industries, what are you left with? Not as much as you had. I can't speak on the actual <laughs> loss. <laughs> you know, but what are you left with, right? Mm-hmm. So we we need to fight for victories in a way that they're not comfortable with. Real change happens when we take it, not when it's given to us. And a lot of the victories like Brown versus Board of Education, they were given to us because we talked about that last last week or two weeks ago, mm-hmm. how that may have been law. Brown versus Board of Education had been a, a legitimate ruling made by the Supreme Court, but it's still ever present to this day. So did it really do anything? No, no. it's now I'm looking at it as more of a symbolic victory. You know what I'm saying? So, I think that uh, these are an appropriate time, unless you have any extra thoughts. No, oh, man. Um, I'm good with that. Uh, Adam, it's been great talking to you as usual. Oh, man, it's been great, man. I think this uh, is a great Thank you all for listening, if you're still tuning in. Um, if you guys ever want to be on the podcast, talk about your experiences, or talk about something you're passionate about, please hit us up. Um, you can hit me and Adam up, or you can hit us up at uh, toughtalks2020 at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, Adam, this has been a tough talk. Sure has been.